everyone. Welcome to episode three of the PM podcast. Thank you again for all the kind words. Today on the podcast, we got we got Jesse Coity, a, a chef, a cook out in um, out in San Francisco. He used to run a restaurant called uh, Pink Zebra in San Francisco, which we talk about. And he also had one of what I think is one of the best chefs nights out, uh, which if you haven't watched it, it's a great series on munchies on YouTube where they just take chefs out after work and they just get fucked up and they and go back to the restaurant and cook for the staff. It's the shit. And, um, and this dude is a fucking true fucking legend. So it's a great podcast. He's got some great fucking stories. Um, and also he, he worked for, which I did not know before I started this, uh, mission Chinese restaurant, which, uh, hopefully people know about still, I would hope so. Cause Danny Bowen's so fucking famous, but back in the original days of, um, Mission Chinese, which we talk about in this episode, uh, it was a shared restaurant. It's two restaurants in one doing two to go menus and two menus. It's fucking incredible. Uh, it's famous in San Francisco. Everybody knows about it, but amongst cooks, it's, it's like the beginning of Danny Bowen's career. If you don't know Danny Bowen, then you got to fucking look him up. But Mission Chinese also has two of the best cookbooks ever made. The second one's newer. It's, it's authored by Danny Bowen. Um, it's great. But the first one Mission Chinese is hands down my favorite cookbook. It has one of the best stories. It's like half the book is just is like a novel or a, or, or a nonfiction book because it's it's Anthony and I think his I believe his wife talking about how they created the restaurant and why and, and the whole journey of of how it blew up and what they were making and the craziness of it all which uh, Jesse talks a little bit about here, but if you haven't read that book or heard anything about that story, it's so fucking crazy um, and incredible. Um, but for a place that's called Mission Chinese, you're thinking, oh, you're going to get Chinese food or maybe like typical American Chinese food. No, dude, they, they were doing so fucking, so much crazy shit. They were just doing all kinds of stuff that was, it was just all over the place and all of it was done so well. Yeah, that, that place blows me away. I, I'm constantly in awe of that place. Um, and it's, like I said, my favorite my favorite cookbook of all time. It's such a crazy, crazy experience going there because it's so tightly packed and the you got to go through the kitchen to get to the restrooms. You get to see a pick at the kitchen. And like uh, Jesse talks about here, it's like it's like so many rooms. It, like the kitchen is like, it's like, a, it's like a house. It's crazy. But Jesse actually worked at uh, Mission Chinese uh, the OG Mission Chinese back in the day. And he ended up doing a sort of a similar concept with his restaurant, Pink Zebra, where he split the dining room and the kitchen in half. And that's how the restaurant worked. You know, it's like a restaurant share, but which is, I kind of think what might be happening more nowadays, now that it's so expensive to open up a restaurant, you know, you can have two restaurants in one or, you know, you can have two menus coming out of one kitchen. It's, um, it's a great idea, especially with rents rising and, and shit like that. But anyway, uh, I think it's a great conversation. I'm trying to get a little better about, you know, asking people about their sort of mental state and, and, and the world outside of the kitchen. But I tend to get so wrapped up in kitchens and I find kitchens so fascinating. I tend to stay in that world, but I wish I had asked him about like, you know, sort of the world outside of his kitchen and how he, how he sort of felt there. But I'm getting, I think I'm getting better. Uh, hopefully I am. Um, I got to stop saying the word damn and crazy, but you don't really realize you're doing these kind of things until you you hear yourself, you know, six hours at a time when you're editing. So, um, how can you try to get better on that? Um, 
I had a little bit of a crazy week this week. Well, not crazy, but man, uh, I, I had to fill in for somebody on grill, which is kind of funny. Cause we talk about this. We talk about wood fire grills in this episode, which is, which is funny. And it's, it's, it's a rough station, man. Have you never worked a grill before? Dude, it is rough. It sucks the life out of you. It's like you're bombarded with like 700 degree heat for 12 hours. It's fucking draining and you're working two stations or maybe three fuck depending on how what your grill's like you're working at least at this restaurant you're working a grill has grates then you're working another grill that you're you're raking burning the wood as fast as possible raking the coals forward cooking the coals getting rid of the dumping the coals doing that like five to six times a night so you're running two stations plus you have to like you have to do all the other stuff to get the the meat on the grill plus maintain both of those fires. It's, it's crazy. Um, and at 35, it, it fucking takes it out of you, man. It's not a, it's a young man's game, dude. It's, it's been a, it was a draining rough week, man, but, uh, it's cool to like jump back on a station and realize that you can still, you can still fucking rock that shit. It doesn't matter what age you are, but I feel like, uh, I feel like talking to Jesse and having worked this past week, on this grill was like, maybe realize how much of a, like, I think, I think Jesse, I don't know anybody else who, who, who sounds like they're a fucking genius at, at line cooking. If there's a genius at line cooking, if that is, is a, a skill to be honed, it sounds like Jesse might be the prince of fucking line cooks. He's like, hey, this guy's like all over the fucking place. He's working all kinds of different places, figuring out new ways to cook um, to be a shorter cook and cook eggs, a virtuoso of, of line cooking, you know? So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to keep this intro really short because everybody's complaining about how much I'm talking. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, still working on merch, still working on pa- Patreon shit. Uh, once it's all done, I'll, I'll let you know, but you know, I'm doing this line cook thing where I got to get paid. Enjoy. Uh, I'll see you next time. to start at the beginning so uh how did you how did you get into cooking and 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 why why did you get into cooking um let's see well i started washing dishes when i was like 17 yeah um this japanese restaurant in san diego and i was just really efficient and fast and so they had me like doing prep doing all the veg prep and protein prep and then cooking on the line and then that was where also where i learned how to make sushi too Um, hey did you did you uh, like want to get into restaurants or was it just kind of like something you yeah. fell into? Yeah. Was right. Job. I was dating this girl. I was more into like going to shows and riding my Vespa around and yeah. You know, yeah. but then like work, I was, I was working a lot and then I wanted to learn like sushi, but I actually cooked for like six years before I had like a sort of self check in about it. it was like, is this even what I want yeah. to do? Cause like, you know, you have twenties, yeah. you're just like, Oh, free food. Yeah. people right <laughs> you're following chicks around yeah you're like sure. <laughs> you know and you just want a cool schedule so you can go to shows and, and yeah time, like yeah. we can get shifts covered pretty easy so yeah but then like at one point i remember thinking like i think I, this is in portland or no this is i don't remember when this was but it was like i'd been cooking for like six years and um i just sort of asked myself like is this even what i want to do and then i thought like well i'm already good at it I like it. Like my grandpa was a chef in the Navy. I was like, yeah, I want to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so then cool. I kind of took it more seriously and then actually yeah. started like trying to cook at restaurants that were more challenging or cuisines I didn't know, wasn't familiar yeah. with. 
at that point, did you like uh, go to school or you just, you just worked your way up? No, I mean, I've only gone to high school. I didn't go to college and then they'd never go to culinary school. By the time I found out about it, it was already from people that graduated and they felt they got kind of grifted and yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of money, especially back then. Yeah. Respectively, oh, I think more yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, like more the exclusive too. Right. Yeah. Like you had to try to get into it. Yeah. There was only a few. What was the, what was the music scene like back then? In San Diego? Yeah, yeah. it's like a punk scene or more like like, yeah, a lot of emo stuff starting to come out. You know, like Blue Wild Pilot and back in those bands were formed then. But there's a lot of that instrumental and just cool hardcore. Nice. Yeah, I don't really know too much about the the West Coast uh, like punk scene, but obviously the East Coast was like you know Fugazi and um, yeah, there was similar bands like um, yeah, Heroin, Hemlock, I don't know, Staccato Reed. Okay, I know Hemlock. Fish life. <laughs> yeah. Did you, when you, when you started like getting into, um, I guess more like focusing more on the food, what was, what was your decision making when you went to those restaurants? Like, did you just well, find the jobs through friends or were you, uh, pretty much. I mean, I had worked, let's see. So I, I worked at that Japanese restaurant and then I had a drug problem for a few years and didn't work at all. And then I left San Diego, moved right. up here and started making sushi again. Um, at a couple of places. I got a job yeah. at this pretty busy place. Um, pretty big. It's called Bluefish. Mm-hmm. And like, kind of, you kind of hit a wall when you're, if you're not like fully Japanese and you're making sushi, cause I'm only half and I was mm-hmm. born and raised in America, third generation. Yeah. So I'm very American, but like you get, you kind of hit a wall where they like all the chefs either don't have time or don't want to teach you. Yeah. <laughs> because what it do you mean? Means like- that, like like it's like, like a, it's like the rank in positions, right? So it's like yeah, the highest yeah. guy, the lowest guy. There's usually like three or four of them, so the rank's pretty like strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and <laughs> they don't leave, right? People, huh? They don't leave, right? So it's well, it's, it's a job. Like, hang on, to it for sure. Yeah, like, you yeah. get like a rad schedule and position for yourself, and you're like, okay, these responsibilities are chill. I like this. I'm in charge. Yeah, right. Yeah. So then, like, they kind of see it as like you could come up on them. <laughs> You'll eventually yeah. be able to work their station. Yeah. So I feel like I got blocked a lot in that way. And then I just got let down by it. I don't know. Like what's the word is like yeah. almost disenchanted. I was like, all right, well now I don't really care anymore. <laughs> yeah. Cause, Cause I, I see the end here. Right. I'm yeah. start learning other cuisines. And so, um, around that time I moved to Oregon, Portland, Oregon, 2001. It was really hard to get a job then, but I got a job at this diet, this like diner, which was rad. Cause I had never done short order. <laughs> Oh, like, damn, so you were like cooking like eggs and stuff? Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a whole It was in this really busy um, lesbian-owned diner called Cup and Saucer. I think they're still open. Really good. And they had a really big following in the neighborhood. Super busy. But I had never done it, so I learned how there. She taught me. And I was fast, so I was able to manage the stove and all the egg orders and deal with the flat top. You're kind of like by yourself until 1030, and then someone shows up to back you up. Yeah. Like really busy. Just, just two cooks but, in there? Cooking, cooking eggs, yeah, and brunch, like and like stuff. lead cooks, like working eight burners and and a flat top, and then helpers doing like sandwich board sharing flat top. Uh huh. You're kind of like the whole kitchen, but um, it was just different. I mean, like, short order is crazy because you get really. It's like entremet. It's like you just have a million small pans that get hot really fast, yeah. and you're cooking something that cooks really fast. And then you learn weird tricks, like you can stack the pans in a way where like. <laughs> 
you have like the egg temps rotating throughout the burner. So it's like the hotter ones can always be at the bottom. Like over easies are riding on top of an over medium and it's like one stack. So then you have like three plates on one burner and you can like really maximize what you put out that way. Wait, so you, wait, 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 wait. So you had pans on top of pans? Yeah, I found this way where you can like what? start starting over hard, flip it, put a pan upside down on top of it and park it to the side in between burners. And then start it over medium. <laughs> That's insane. Stack that, and then you put the over easy on top. But then at that point, you take the over hard, flip it, and put it back on to like kind of finish it. <laughs> That's crazy. And then That's you plate insane. the over easy, and then like yeah. just check the over medium. It's like this move where you're like, <laughs> yeah. But I was able to get the wait time down from like three hours on Sunday to like forty five minutes, which felt right. Oh, I was like, oh shit, fucking shredding it. Yeah. <laughs> All servers were stoked. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that's that's crazy. The shorter shorter cooks, it, that kind of job scares me. It's like, yeah, you're balancing so much at one time. It's insane. It's, I don't know how it's you. Weird keep though. The yeah, it is. And, what yeah. I noticed is like the flat top is like an anchor for speed though. It's only going at one speed in different heat zones. It's not like going out of control. It's like you have a pancake <laughs> or like <laughs> a burger. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like it slows you down. You're like dancing the stove, and then you're like my pancake, my burger. Yeah my potatoes <laughs> <laughs> well wait i want to go back a little bit if you don't mind um you said you had a drug problem at one point was that as a result of the working in kitchens because i find that personally like my drinking got out of hand when i kind of reached kind of the same point i think you did where i felt like i was kind of trapped and uh -huh. the only thing that i found enjoyment in was after like a crazy shift you know yeah, you, you yeah had a beer with the Exactly. And then it just spirals. Yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't say that like that um relationship with drugs was a result of that because I hadn't only only been cooking for like a couple of years and I was like nineteen oh, okay. when I started using. But I mean I had done started using drugs and drinking at a really young age. Um so I experimented heavily all through like junior high and high school with a lot of different drugs and high school mainly a lot of psychedelics, but like it was more like 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 what was happening with my life personally dating and friends, like losing a lot of friends to drugs. And then I don't know, in the nineties, heroin was really cheap. It was all over the place. Everybody was using it. So yeah. Did you, um, did you find it a lot in, um, in kitchens back then? Probably, but like, because it was the first restaurant I'd worked at and it was a Japanese restaurant. So everybody there was either like a Japanese student or a Japanese cook, like who lived here, um, different culture. Yeah. Yeah. But knowing like the time and what was going on and the demographic of the city, yeah, there definitely had to have been for sure. Yeah. And it, I mean, I just didn't work. Like I had that job. I got really strung out. I remember like I couldn't even make it through a shift. I would just be like on my knees, like leaning on the fucking cutting board. <laughs> and the owner was like, knew I was, something was going on. I just told him after yeah. a while. I was like, I came to work one day. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I have a drug problem. I got to quit. Yeah. How did you, how did you get out of that? I, I just decided that I didn't want to do it anymore. Like you have to kind of, with, with addiction, it's like, well, the only way it really works is you make this decision that that's actually what you yeah. want. And what you're doing is not what you want. And then you have this like moment of reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you just head off in that direction and it's hard. It's fine now, but like for, say for the first like eight years, it was, it was a struggle. Ooh. Damn. Yeah. I can't imagine, man. Um, so you said the, you getting off drugs and then deciding that cooking was kind of your, your, your path forward. Does, did those yeah. two things coincide with each other? 
when I got clean, I had this short job driving a truck from San Diego to LA that was a refrigerated like orchid courier truck. So I'd pick up at nurseries and then drop off at other nurseries and bring stuff back to the guy that owned it. And then he, he would deliver it around LA. It was just like a short-term job. He's a friend of my mom who's a horticulturist and was traveling up to San Francisco every other week. Uh-huh. And his sister lived in Petrero Hill. So I would stay with her on Wednesday night. We would go to um, Moshi Moshi, which used to be down on like third Mariposa. And they offered me a job one time because we would go in there every other week and they were friendly with us. And then they were like, they had known that I had experience making sushi just through conversation. But then one time they were like, we have a job if you want to come take it. And so like I did, I just got out of San Diego and moved up here. So, was that the, was that the place where you were, you felt kind of cornered out or were you? Yeah, but it was like a skill that I could just pick, mm-hmm. like, use, you know, like I could, I felt at that point, I was like, I, I feel confident going in any kitchen and making sushi. So, at what point did you start moving away from Japanese food then? Yeah. So like after that spot, I got the job at Blowfish, which was a lot more fun, a lot busier. Um, it was really obnoxious. I don't even know about it, but there was like, no, no, an, like anime porn and it was in like the height of like the first dot com boom in like 90. Like, they opened in like 98, I think. 96, was it even? Was it pretty traditional sushi or were they doing like crazy like rolls? It was a little crazy. Like all, and... all the dishes in the kitchen were really crazy and heavily French influenced, but also kind of like just wet. The chef was pretty, pretty like uh, wacky. Like he had pretty creative <laughs> ideas. Okay. Um, especially for the time. But um, the sushi, like the techniques were like traditional, but the presentations and flavor combinations were, you know, just what. Yeah, people wanted to eat at that time, basically. So anyway, I worked there the first time. Then I moved to Portland, worked at the diner, and then I worked at this like Pan Asian restaurant called Sauce Box, and started to learn other like Asian cuisines, which was cool, like some of the Thai, Korean, like you know, just other cuisines mm-hmm. I had been exposed to. And then it was that job, I think, where I, I it was more like less just like I wanted to learn European or non-Asian cuisine, you know? Yeah, yeah, and. Friend of mine knew the chef that was uh, Morgan Brownlow, who was the original chef opening of uh, Clark Lewis in Portland. It was like 2002, okay. and that place was pretty rad. It was in this old warehouse. It was big, it had a big open kitchen, like raised up on like a platform, like a loading dock, basically. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, it had a hearth, like a really big five spit custom brick charcoal hearth. Damn. They had like a full pasta program, so they we made pastas like 12 mm-hmm. to 18 of them a day. <laughs> The menu was huge. They had like grill, fish, pasta, any pasta. Damn. Um, but he got me a job there and I started on any pasta. You know, but it was like the menu changed every day. It was all ingredients. I didn't even know what they were. I never heard of most of them yeah. at all. And then that section had like on weekends it would have like eighteen pickups, like like basically like two soups, two shared, like a like a pasta saute, and then a bunch a grip of salads or like stuff you had to prep all yeah. the menu, you know, like tomatoes and like tomato and cheese dishes or like shaved artichoke, shaved asparagus dishes yeah. were all prepped all the minute and all the vinaigrettes you pretty much built. You just had like shallots ma- like macerating in different acids. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to like build, you know, so it was fast and busy, but um, that was where I learned how to like cook meat over the hearth. That's cool. How was, how was that hearth? Like <laughs> it's a beast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my current restaurant right now, we have, kind of a two grill setup where it's like a traditional, you know, fire underneath and then grill grates. And then also mm-hmm. we have kind of like a hearth in the back where you're creating coals 
and then mm-hmm. raking those coals forward. Yep, um, that's how this one worked. Okay. It was like two, like three foot grill. It was like six feet wide. The two panels, it was all brick. It had an electric five spit rotisserie that you could control the speed and turn on and off. And it was, you could load it while it was moving. It was really like, it was designed really well. Were you doing um, like chickens back there or something? Like slow roasted chicken? Well, so we, <laughs> Morgan was a beast, man. He, we would go through like a 400 pound side of beef every other week. And then every week we would hit like six lamb, five suckling pigs, squabs and ducks and stuff. Sometimes chicken. Wow. So like, you'd have different cuts, right? Like Damn. you'd have like, like lamb chops go to Dito's or like double cut shoulder chops the size of like baseballs or like, <laughs> all these things that are really hard to cook, which is cool because I was trying to figure it out. Yeah. But um, yeah, that station was right. I learned how to cook meat over a fire. I would go through like it's fun, right? two 50 pound bags of coal every day, pretty much. Oh, so you guys you were using there, like, coal? Uh, you weren't yeah, were you using like, um, wood or? Yeah, like mesquite, or? mesquite charcoal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, like you get there early. You know, dump your ashes from the night before, build a new fire. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, it's like working two stations because you have to cook and then also maintain all the fire at the same time. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be fun, but it's, it can be a shit show too. I got good at like spying on what he was prepping and with what he was butchering and what was in rotation. So I would usually like could see in the walk in if I got there, like, oh, I'm going to have these today, right? Yeah. But then there was always like a doozy one you would throw at me that was always really hard to focus on all night. So I feel like I learned a lot. That was the first job I had where I felt like I was going to school and getting paid. Yeah. Like watching yeah. other guys that were like seasoned cooks work and learning like how moves, like how to move from them. And just, yeah, it was cool. What, whatever happened to that place? Is it still, is it still? Um, it's, I, so like, I think, yeah, like it's, I think it's still there. It's like a different food, different chef, different situation, but um, I don't really keep a whole lot of tabs on the food yeah. scene anymore. there's you guys got too much stuff going on over there so i I understand it's always something new what would you say was like the style of food it was like california like calmed you know like okay farm to early farm to table california like mediterranean like we had a farmer in southern oregon that would drive stuff up like two or three times a week and just deliver you this rad produce just coated in mud and like (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's great. Yeah, all like the meat was up from um it was all it was the farm was on this island up on the river, like right in town there. It was a little weird. That's why. <laughs> That's crazy. Did you where'd you uh where'd you go after that? How well actually how long did you stay there? I stayed there for like two and a half years. Um I got really connected to that job. I love that place. I was like really sad to leave. I remember my last shift was on New Year's on two thousand four, New Year's Eve. And I can remember like my last plate, I could see it in my hand. Damn. <laughs> So why, why did you end up leaving there then if, if it was... Uh... Well, because I wanted to move back to San Francisco. Okay. Why did you move back to San Francisco? Because I had a crush on this girl that I used to work with. That worked <laughs> <laughs> that's, usually, that's usually what it is. I worked at Blowfish and they, they offered me a job to come back. They needed a chef and they are like, you know the job, you know the menu. You've worked with half the people that still work here. If you want to come back, we'll give you like a small raise based on what you were making before. And I was like, okay. Um, so I did. And that was fun. I worked there for like nine more months. I lived like two blocks away in this house. With the and you ended up being the chef there? No, I was just oh, okay. like a sushi cook there. Oh, okay. And uh, where did you head after that? Um, gee, after I got fired for getting punched in the face. Wait, let's go back. Why did you get fired? <laughs> the sushi chef and, and I got into it one night and he ran across the line and punched me in the face, just like sucker punched me in the face. What was and the fight about? The, uh, this is like a complicated story. So we had ordered new floor mats from like the kitchen supply company, Byright, right? Mm-hmm. 
and they didn't bring them on the delivery, but they had thrown the old ones out the night before because the trash pickup. Yeah. So they didn't have like mats all service. They just had cardboard down, which is usually fine. But then like yeah. when you get to break down a kitchen that seat, you know, like a 90 seat restaurant or 80 seats, whatever, it was just, it gets messy and greasy and so it'd be oh, yeah. really fast, right? So a couple of the servers had already slipped and fallen. One of them dropped like a whole bus tub full of shit, right? Oh, damn. And I, the, me and that guy had already kind of had beef over things before, but it, nothing ever really got physical. But I, he was weird. He was using, I'm pretty sure he was using. And I, I just went back there and I was like, you guys are fucking maniacs. You need to clean this shit up. Like, people are getting hurt. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're not doing anything to prevent, like, these already fucking two people that have fallen over. Like, get this shit together. Like, I was kind of just, like, trying to rally them up and be like, what the fuck's going on? And I don't think he liked that at all. And he just ran over and fucking decked me. But, like, Jesus, all right. I remember I fought it so hard because he was standing right by the deep fryer, and, my, and, I, and my, I was like, just push him in. Just dunk his head in there. Like, <laughs> just stick his hand in it. Like, <laughs> And then I just like walked over to my, my like boss at that time, which is my boss now, my friend Rio. And I was like, so-so just punched me in the face. I'm going to leave right now and go walk around the block. <laughs> <laughs> and I like took a bottle of beer and drank it and walked around the block. But um, yeah, then we both got fired, which I was really frustrated about because that was purposely why I didn't punch him back. Because I was like, you'll lose yeah, your you, job if you hit him yeah. back. You guys will both get fired. Yeah. And so I didn't hit him back. And then I was like so mad when they were like, we gotta let you go too. And I was like, shit. What? <laughs> I could have ducked his head at the fryer. Yeah. I was like, that's why I didn't hit him. <laughs> so mad. Um, I saw him one day outside of this other sushi bar like a couple years ago. And I was picking up my contacts at the optometrist. I wanted to run over there and just be like, bam. <laughs> <laughs> How many years was it later was that? Like 10. Oh shit. Still, still want to do it. Yeah. I hadn't seen the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. But he was. In his shit. Well, what happened? After that? Yeah. So like, <laughs> let's see. That was technically where I, that was where I met Danny, Danny bone. Oh, he was really Danny. hungry. He was always looking for places to work for free or work and get paid. So like he showed up at blowfish and I was appointed. <laughs> they appointed me to train him. They were like, you train him. <laughs> He's more like you. And I was like, okay, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> We became friends there. But yeah, he uh, told me about this. Spot. He just arrived in San Francisco? He had just moved back from New York. Okay. But I think he had lived there previously to go to culinary school. So he like moved to San Francisco, went to culinary school, and then he went to New York, had a shitty time in a few places, and then came back and was just cooking all over the city. But it was fun because we would go like, like he was like, hey, my friend Chris, who I went to culinary school with, got a job as chef at this place, Slow Club. Let's go cook over there. So we both cooked over there. <laughs> and then, like, he, I was at Slow Club for a couple of years, and that place was rad. Um, Chris Croner was a chef at the time. Aaron's a rad operator. He runs a really great, he ran a really great business. Slow Club's still there. It's, it's called the Morris now. I think they're doing okay. pretty well. This tiny little restaurant with like a two person line, it's like an open kitchen. I became sous chef there. She offered me the chef position after Chris left, but the thing about that place was they had a rad burger and everyone went there because it was a rad burger. And so oh, you shit. had like you two other dishes, like a meat like, dish, a fish yeah. dish, a pasta and a couple flatbreads mm -hmm. and then some salads. And so you could get creative and have fun. You know, there was an oven fryer grill, but um, you would always have like 10 burgers on the grill. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you're cooking, right? All night. <laughs> and that made it frustrating. Like there, I, I went through some nights where I broke the burger record there and like, I was like, dude, I don't want that. 
<laughs> just cook burgers for the rest of your life. I, I told her, I was, I felt bad. I was like, I would totally take this job, you know, cause you're a rad operator and I love everyone that works for you. And like the crew here is great, but I can't be cornered in there making like 60 burgers a night. <laughs> and she was like, I totally get it. Yeah. What, what made the burgers so special? It's just a rad burger. I mean, it's just, it's it, it had been, I think mm-hmm. since they opened that place in like late nineties also. So, I mean, there's, there's tons of burgers now, but I feel like then burger wasn't such a thing on restaurant menus, you know? I mean, it was like bar menus, but it was, I mean, I'm going to try to say there's a lot more burger competition now. That's true. Yeah. It's like Chris Cohen was chef there. He ended up opening a burger business, right? Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, I just, I felt bad when I declined, but she understood. Yeah. So did you end up moving on from after that or did you kind of stick with the new chef? After that, um, Danny had told me about another place he was working at called Farina, which is also in the mission. It's not open anymore, but um, it was this Italian place. Uh, the chef was awesome. Old, older, well, not old. He was like 10 years older than 15 years older than me. Um, this dude, Paolo Laboa, and he just knew everything about like Genova cuisine. He was from the north. Um, but he knew all the other cuisines too. He just he was that dude, like he knew all the continental recipes, like anything pastry he knew, like by Graham in his head. Wow. And <laughs> could tell you the process. Like he was really good at all that stuff. Um, but he was also very creative. I mean, he like knew he was really good at flavors and techniques. Simple. You know, like still like like Italian like Italian a lot of Italian cuisine is very traditional and simple, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's great um, produce in California to kind of make it make that the, yeah, uh, style of food work really well there. Mm-hmm. So, makes sense. We were getting tomatoes and mushrooms from this old dude Sergio, who I was getting stuff through at Slow Club, and he he basically like he knew where he knew where to find porcini's. He would show up like during service with like flats of fucking the most amazing porcini's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when when I worked in Michigan, we just have people show up at the back door with mushrooms all the time. Mm-hmm. And they try to undercut the guy who showed up the night before, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. the mushroom trade is so strange and, yeah. and weird. But he also, he also moved tomatoes and pea, like stone fruits, mm-hmm. tomatoes, peppers, um, like all the nightshades. Like he moved those from this other farm out in winters that at George Peach Farm, they, they grow red shit. I've actually been out there and checked it out. But yeah, that place, it was busy. It was big. It had like two, it was like a private room upstairs that sat like 16. And then there was like, bar of 30 or 40 <laughs> and then i think there's like 50 or 60 seats was it kind of pizzas and pastas and any so it was like a focaccia technically but i mean it was like a high-end like pasta focaccia restaurant like we didn't really ever have pizza because it's not really like genovese but we did like focaccia di recco which was rad um and like nobody really was serving that super simple to make you have to find like really good stracchino but that dish is awesome <laughs> yeah it's like a really thin flaky like like it rises, but then like the proof smashes and you stretch it out into a thin paper dough, all greasy, and you put that over a quarter sheet tray and you put lots of cheese in there and then put like another piece on top and then just blast it in a really hot oven. And yeah. it gets like crispy brown, like squashed focaccia dough, but like, it's just like cheese and milk. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Um, I haven't seen that anywhere. But yeah, we made like focaccia, we made bread, all the pastry, every pastry program, we made all the noodles every day there was this really long marble counter with a pasta machine at the end so it was really efficient to make like tons of pasta for the restaurant yeah, yeah. damn so you must have been great at making pasta at this point i did i learned how to make it there and i would come in early and help with production to learn and then 
at Slow Club, I got to like create actual pickups to like sauces and, you know, just pan sauces and stuff for noodles. We bought noodles from a different company there. There was no prep space. But yeah, like learning how from Paolo was rad because he really had like a personal connection with Bill and the history and traditions of all of the Genovese recipes. And his dough recipe was inspired by like a large um, Chinese population that moved there in the late 1800s. And so there was like a lot of Chinese immigrants in Genova and like he, like his grandma would hang out with this old lady and they would talk about dough recipes. And so his family's dough always had like a little bit of wine in it and it made the dough like, um, handle a lot easier wow that's really cool like forgiving but it wouldn't break it was weird <laughs> yeah but it was like a, a tip she had picked up from like her chinese friend and i was like oh, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah that's there's still it's it's cool the um crossover there uh-huh. china and italy for sure yeah um did you did you and danny kind of follow each other for a while there we did we kind of ping-ponged yeah. around yeah. um he was at that time he well so like we got jobs there and he was working at like a few different places at the time but he kind of focused all his energy on Frida and he was working closely with Paolo and became CDC um I was sous chef and then like he had a falling out with the owner and quit abruptly like one day just sort of walked out and I remember like kind of being really frustrated at the time but um then I was left in charge of the place which was good because it was like a step up and I got to learn more and work with Paolo again closer but like it's just a lot managing that when you're like 26 or whatever, 20, I remember how old I was. <laughs> Damn. 29, I think. <laughs> yeah. How long do you stay there after that? Uh, another year. And then I had the same experience with the owner and I walked out abruptly. Was he just like a difficult guy to work with? Yeah. Very. In, in what way? In the way that like feeling was anyone who has a lot of money who usually gets their way is. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Did he try to control the food a lot? Sometimes, but through Paolo, which didn't ever work well, because like Paolo was like me. Like if someone tried to control him, he would just be like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> so is, is that kind of why that place uh, doesn't exist anymore? Probably, yeah. yeah. I would say that like the owner did not contribute to the longevity and sustainability of that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Except for financially. Where did the chef end up? He ended up secretly dating, then dating, then had a family with the other sous chef my friend Mercedes and then they moved to the East coast in Massachusetts. And he, he has a place out there um, called solo Italiano and they're doing really well. Okay. It's perfect for him. Like he likes family. Her family lives out there. He likes to ride horses. He's got room for horses out there. Okay. He just needs a rad place to make food and like have a good crew. Yeah. So he, I think he's doing pretty good. I want to go check it out. I want to go visit him. Nice. Well, what happened after that fight? Where'd you end up after well, that? So, like, it was weird because he quit and then like we did, I don't I just ignored it. Yeah, like we didn't talk. Like he quit and never really like connected with me about it. And then I was all like butthurt. And I was like, fuck you then. But then like when I quit, I remember like walking over to Mission Burger where him and Anthony were doing that burger pop up and mm-hmm. I was like, hey, let's work together. That's was that after you quit the uh the Italian spot? Mm-hmm. It was like that like that day. <laughs> <laughs> so did you end up working at the burger pop up or did you start at uh Mission no, Chinese? At that point I just started helping them out at Mission Chinese, like they were still doing Mission Street Food, and like that was that was finishing. And so like that was 2009-10. At that point, I was working at um, the Alembic Bar. My friend Ted Flurry was the chef. He was a really rad chef too. Uh, it was this little tiny bar, and most people didn't even know they had food. It was really weird. But like tiny little kitchen, and he knew a lot of like he was, that's where I was first exposed to a lot of modern modern techniques. Yeah. Um, using chemicals to change textures and stuff, you know? 
That's really cool. Yeah. I'm learning that right now at my current kitchen. It's perception yeah. changing. He, he, he came up in pastry and then started working doing savory. And so he had a lot of like very technique driven ideas. It was really cool to work with him, but he was really chill, mellow, quiet guy. Yeah. And it was tiny. It was a bar. So it's like never got too hectic. You'd have a push, a bunch of snacks and dishes. And then yeah, you go back to prep at like eight o'clock or nine o'clock. Get <laughs> <laughs> more dishes. I mean, you'd be there to like, the ship was like five to one. So it was perfect. Cause I was, uh, oh, that's really nice. planning my wedding at that time that year. Oh, okay. It was nice to have like a, a night shift. But yeah, then he, that was when he started focusing with Anthony on like doing mission Chinese food. And so then I went to help him with that project. Dude, what was that like working in that kitchen? Because I, I mean, I've been there a few times and it seems insane. This could be like a whole separate podcast. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> okay, it was um, physically, emotionally, and culturally intense, yet like rewarding in all those same ways as well. Yeah. Like I didn't really, I didn't really ever have a connection with Chinese community because I didn't really have Chinese friends growing up, I guess. And mm-hmm. I just didn't know very many Chinese people. <laughs> so... I got to learn a lot about Chinese culture there through all the different people that worked there because everybody was from some other random place in China and they were varying ages of like 30 to 80. <laughs> yeah. You know, so like you'd get, I don't want to say you'd get to get them to tell you stories because nobody spoke English, but it was like over time you learn things about them Yeah, through translation or just, there's like a learned communication when you can't speak common language and like a lot yeah. of it's pantomime. Yeah. I'm, um, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of only Spanish speaking dishwashers and mm-hmm. cooks and yeah, it's almost like you're acting out and you kind of figure things out through that. We're just, it's yeah. Pissed. It's like subconsciously everyone knows the need, right? Like, yeah. Everyone yeah, knows exactly. what, like we're all here to make some food for someone yeah. <laughs> and then clean up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we invented like a system to fire the food. Cause like what, it wasn't a POS. So, we invented a system to fire the food to the walk room because the kitchen, I'm sure that place must've been an old house or something. Like there was like one room in the back that had like a four burner walk, right? Uh-huh. Or a three burner walk. And then an oven. And then there's another room where we set up like a cold station that didn't have a sink in it. And then there was another room in the back that had the dish and prep area, which is just like some fridges and counters and dish station. Yeah. And there was like a middle room where we set up expediting which was the closest room to the dining room so like food would get walked out from the walk room and the cold room <laughs> you had to like walk it over <laughs> oh so was there like a central pass and like a different no <laughs> no oh you just walked it no. out <laughs> you had to like grab your or like the server would come wait for it in that room it was, like when it got busy that's what would happen they would just all be standing there like and you just pass it to them. <laughs> Mainly though, we would walk it over. Oh, okay. I remember walking like five, six plates constantly out of that room. At the height of that thing, it must have been insane though. I mean, I, yeah, it was I, nuts. I went there like four years ago, I want to say, maybe five. And even then it was crazy. 2011. So we all worked really hard. Like It was like a good starting base menu. Um, I feel like Danny has always been really good at self-promotion and Anthony kind of keeps it's very quiet things on like a real realistic perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. And like 2011, when they, we started to get some national recognition, I just, it was like overnight. Like I remember that week was so, it was like getting hit with like a tidal wave for me. Cause I was like, 
wait, we, we need six pork belly again. We just got six yesterday. They're gone. Like, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. Just realizing like, the orders go up. Yeah. Like six Damn. cases of lamb. We sold six cases of lamb breast today. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so then like overnight, I mean, cause that article in Bonavit came out and then like that afternoon there was about 350 people standing outside waiting to eat. Jesus, man. Like an hour before we opened. <laughs> That's insane. And I just was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Were you guys doing takeout as well on top of that? Uh, yeah. Wow. But it was like, Shit. people just wanted to go there, I think, at first. I mean, yeah. actually, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure we did because we always did takeout. Yeah, they, yeah, for sure. Wow. The takeout aspect of it got crazy, too, in another different way. But, like, just the um, initial, like, oh, we're so busy now. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. And then it was just like a schedule. It was like every day you just received like hundreds of pounds of meat. And we had these really sketchy braising techniques because the oven didn't really fit like two 800s. <laughs> <laughs> you had to like <laughs> do this thing we called, I called Braise Marie, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, <laughs> so gnarly. <laughs> we had this one 800 that had these like flanged sides for uh-huh. like a steam table right so like yeah, yeah. it has these like flanged sides on the lip that when you park it on the steam table it keeps it I don't know it's just like decorative or something but it made it like wider at the top like the top two inches of it were like a little wider than a normal hotel mm-hmm. and so we would have like a braze in there and then I would set up another one in a regular hotel and basically just put like parchment paper and like foil down across the top and just like float it in the other brain. <laughs> <laughs> you were doing like six or you said like six or 12 pork bellies. Yeah. Time? You had to get something in the oven by Jeez. 10 AM rocking at 10. So you had to like, we would, I would basically like sear meat in the wok. What would I start first? It was always like pork belly. Cause you could just let those go. Like the morning could get away from you and you'd be fine. Cause it's fucking pork belly. Right. Yeah. Even yeah. lamb breast. It's like, you, I'll let them all go beef cheek. Mm-hmm. But like we had it figured out, so it was like a solid like three hour brace time with like a three hour rest at room temperature. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, we would just you had to get something in. So it was like I'd be setting up, I'd be searing pork bellies. Those would go in. You just make the brazing liquid in the wok, and then the whole then like you fill it up, then you put the hotel on the wok burner and like light that up, <laughs> <laughs> and then you send it in the oven, and then you just had to rotate them. Like you had to rotate them in the oven, and then pull them out and park them. But you had to do like. Two, like two eight hundreds, like basically like six pork bellies. Like getting six cases of lamb in two eight hundreds was always sketch. Made me feel so nervous. Why? Because there's enough liquid in here. Too much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like that. But okay. basically, what happens is you, it starts. It's just confit. It's like after the first yeah. like hour, it's all just lamb fat, and so you're just confiting <laughs> it. <laughs> How many cooks were working back there? There was two guys on a walk, and it's all just like immigrants, like Chinese people, like random people that you see on the bus like it was mm. cool <laughs> two, two guys on walk there was um always one lady on dish and then we started with one just me doing prep and then i was like i can't get through all this veg too like cases of eggplant and long beans and like all this shit like there's too much going on we need can we just hire someone to come chop vegetables so <laughs> <laughs> we did this woman ho she was hilarious and we had t-bone who started in the beginning he was like the first cook they hired, he was rad. He was young, this big, chunky Chinese kid. Um, but like, he kind of became my guy. Like he started like just wanting to learn how to make everything. Cause he was like, I want to help you. You're always so busy, you know, yeah. like talking about how to make all the sauces and stuff, which was rad. Cause that's a lot of help. Yeah. yeah. It's a chunk of the day. We made, I mean, we would go through like 
like 24 quarts of chili oil like every day. What? For garnish. Jesus, man. Wow. <laughs> oh, like you yeah. take it in large soup veins and you put like yeah. a kilo of fucking cayenne pepper in there and all these other spices and you just fill oh. it with like ripping hot wok oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you pour it in, it's just like smoking, right? Mm-hmm. And then you then you'd shock it with cold oil. And then you cap it and let it sit. And like by the time dinner rolled around, it was like this like rad chili oil, right? Yeah. 24 <laughs> quarts. But we would go through like two of those every day. It was, it was just busy. There was so much production in this That's really crazy. tiny, yeah. sketchy space. <laughs> yeah. Was, was the other, the other restaurant that was running out of there, were they kind of just as busy or were they helping you guys? Okay. They so doing? they had like a steady flow. They probably did like, I want to say like 12, a thousand to, maybe 15 on a holiday. I mean, it was like, they always knew they were going to move X amount of product. It wasn't busy, but it wasn't dead. Right. Just steady. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like a lot of walnut prawns and, and like wontons and egg rolls and noodles and stuff. Right. Fried rice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But they, when we got busy, that was the other thing is like, we couldn't store product. Where were you putting everything? Like on Sundays were hard. We would have to go like scramble around town and go buy things to put on the menu because we didn't have meat. We couldn't get delivery. Uh-huh. We already went through all the meat we could have brought in on like seriously. <laughs> like, we couldn't hold like stuff on back, right? That's crazy. So we battled with them for space and they didn't want to give it up. There's nowhere to put any other equipment. Eventually over like a period of six months and lots of late night arguing between them, like they stopped serving their menu. At first they just served like four or five dishes and then after like another few months they just stopped completely but focused on being more partnered with what Mission Chinese was doing. So they like ran the whole takeout system program they don't serve any of their food after at, at a certain point it wasn't yeah damn. yeah they stopped because well it was like one or the other right yeah it just right. became clear yeah and they probably looked at what we were doing and they were like this is way more lucrative <laughs> yeah yeah i was gonna say like were there people coming to get food from them and then not understanding what was happening all the time yeah for sure <laughs> That's, I mean, it's a brilliant idea, like restaurant sharing. I think that that might uh-huh. kind of be the next step here in Austin, but um, well, it does seem complicated, what I, deeply. What, <laughs> what I saw happen, and I've used this uh, analogy to explain it to people, it's like it was more of a parasite, like to the definition of the word, right? <laughs> okay. It's like the parasite found a host, yeah. um, worked like symbiotically with the host to a point where it could gain an advantage and then <laughs> consumes the host. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Perfect explanation. Basically like, I mean, I don't mean that in like a judgmental way, like, Oh, yeah. they were a parasite, but it's like how that's how parasites work. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that's, that's a perfect way to describe it. It's weird. Cause I went in there to eat like a year or two ago and, um, the, the owners of the other restaurant, Longshan, the original restaurant, so they like kind of took over the delivery situation at that time their kids were in high school. So their son and all of his friends and their like sports cars became our delivery drivers. Right. And we had like six or eight of them at one point, Yeah, like every night. And like, so they became a part of the company and then like the owner, the original owners, like they were always there. Like she always answered the phone always and did the money. And then like, he was always there bickering and fixing things. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so when I went back, it was interesting because like the son was like managing, like he was just running the place. Like he was feeling it, taking the orders. The, the mom was there. I mean, he was there. She was answering the phone, watching soap operas. But like, it was trippy because I had this moment of like, 
I remember coming in here and he was in junior high school. Wow. And like, we were still only had like six dishes on the menu and we just worked out of the cold room with like hot plates and like, (laughs) (laughs) damn, it was trippy. Yeah. Does it, is Anthony still like involved there or is it kind of totally been passed over to them? He is like to set like remotely. I mean, he, he moved away from the city. I mean, his wife and his um, daughter moved to Portland recently. And, um, I, I'm not sure what he's doing up there. I mean, like, they too much in touch with him. Yeah. I think he comes down every once in a while. Okay. So he's, it is still kind of, it's kind of just self operating, I think. Yeah. Seems like it's on autopilot at this point, right? Like, I went in there and, like, T Bone kind of works out of, like, my old little prep station office, you know, like, oh, wow. That, I had this, like, corner. So he kind of took it over and it dragged because it's like, he's got all, like, my original recipe notes. That's cool. That's right. Really I like cool. left for him when I left. I was like, here's all the information I have for all the sauces and everything like, here. Yeah. That's awesome. Why'd you end up leaving there? Was it just too, too much? I was there for five years. Wow. You okay. know, working like six doubles every week. Damn. Um, and you know, like, I, I like at one point, like I got to hire a sous chef. And so like, I would basically have friends that I cooked with before come work with me for like a year or so until they got over it <laughs> <laughs> and like just help out with projects. Um, but after a while, like, I don't know, Danny moved to New York and opened another shop, and it was fun. I got to go out there and help him do that project. Um, but we just kind of grew more distant, I think, when he moved. And then, like, issues would arise about the restaurant, and it wouldn't able, like, it was just hard to get him on the phone, hard to get yeah. decisions made, you know, about shit going on. Plus, you have, like, all the internal battles with the owners. Like, they were all, we were always battling, even though we all got along. Yeah. There was like a yelling match in there. Like at least once okay. a day, there was like a yelling match between like, <laughs> either the mom and the dad or like <laughs> Anthony and the mom. <laughs> it's just me and someone else, you know? Um, was it just like uh, business arguments or was it more like being in a heated space at that time for 12 hours a day? Yeah. yeah. The heated, I mean, walk kitchens are still hot. Like, yeah. That hood was old stuff. And so it didn't really do much. Shit. Sometimes it would break and that whole restaurant would be like 110 degrees. It was Ooh. crazy. Oh God. Yeah. I've been, I've been um, but like, well, like Danny and I just became distant again, right? Physically, but yeah. also he was busy with trying to open and promote and keep open <laughs> the other location. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. but then like a, like a clear separation started to, started to occur. Cause I realized like, it was like, He's clearly said, like, I want that place to feel like it's yours. Do whatever you want with it. But then, like, I can't get a hold of the guy, right? So, I'm like, he really just wants to, he doesn't want to operate this side anymore. Yeah. And after a while, like, I got kind of burned out. I also wanted to start doing my own thing. I felt more confident and had, like, more creative ideas about what cuisine would look like if I had a place to create it, right? Yeah. Is that um, when you uh, created Pink Zebra? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You kind of just moved on and found um, a spot for your for yourself. I did. I, I kind of came across a cool opportunity um, with uh, working with McKellar, the beer, the brewer from Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, okay, cool. He um, used to come in to eat all the time. Every time he was in town, he would call from the airport and order like four orders of wings so that they were ready when he would walk in the door. <laughs> <laughs> And he would sit down and crush like this huge sheep tray of wings with his friends. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was cool and he offered to organize and help set up a pop-up and 
Copenhagen. Like when he found out I wanted to kind of do my own thing, he kind of presented an opportunity. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. That's rad. And so he got me working with a, a guy over there and organizing it all. And then we ended up, we were able to like sell five seatings of like nine, like two pairs of 45 in this little tiny Japanese restaurant. In Copenhagen? Yeah. And so I flew out there. It was like, we, that was the plan. It was like, they were like, come up with a menu. We'll try to sell the tickets. If we can sell this amount, you can fly out. If we can sell the whole thing out, you'll actually make some money. <laughs> and, but we did. It was cool. Yeah. We were like, yeah. Five nights, two turns of 45. Wow. Six plates. Was that in pre- preparation for opening a, a place in San Francisco or was it that kind of just it, a fun? It was kind of like a, a launch of the pop-up. It was oh, like, okay. hey, I'm doing this pop-up and here's the food. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to do it over here. <laughs> <laughs> what, and then, what was the food like? What was the menu? Let's see. There is six small moves. Uh, one was like burrata and melon gel. It was like a chunk of burrata and I made like a, a kudzu thickened melon juice. And then just had like fruit, like melon um, cut into these mysterious shapes on top. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was live glass shrimp just on ice. Who we hit with like a, a salty water and they would just go out to the table like jumping all over the place. <laughs> what else was there? Oh, like a Norwegian. The, when you get Norwegian mackerel in Copenhagen, it's actually really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a case of this weird frozen stuff. It's like, yeah, 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 it's like really nice mackerel, really fatty. Um, and then I did like a minced katsu dish. So it was mainly Japanese. Yeah, inspired with like sort of Mediterranean flavors, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so when you came back from that, did you, uh, like, did you look for a spot or did you intend to have a restaurant share? I feel like at that point it was a whirlwind. There was a lot going on. Like I went and did the pop-up. I came back, was here for like a day and a half. And then me and my buddy Rio, who I work for now, who was going to help me with the pop-up, he was going to do the sushi omakase and I was going to do the food kitchen. So we went to Japan together for 10 days to do research and buy equipment. Nice. But like came back from Copenhagen, got on a plane again, went to Japan and then we were there. Came back from that. And I, yeah, I think I was already in negotiations with this space that I was able to share. And a couple of blocks from Mission Chinese. But oh, that's cool. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of places do you eat at in Japan? Were you guys mainly looking for like sushi or? Yeah, but we weren't looking for like all the really common, really high end places. I was like, let's lay low and just find like rad technique in small little towns and areas, you know? Yeah. Did and you go to Tokyo? Yeah, we did. And we ate really great sushi in Tokyo and great food. Um, but the more memorable ones I had were like in the Izu Peninsula, just south. We had really great food down there in Atami and Izu, Ito. And then like Kyoto had really awesome tofu dishes and different, like really different traditional uses of like soy, mm. sake leaves, like all the byproducts of sake, rice production. Soy yeah, production. Right. that's awesome. Shows up a lot in their food. Osaka. Oh, Osaka's insane. Yeah. yeah Osaka's Osaka food, food city. We were there for like one, yeah. like a day, a night, and then most of the next day when we left in the afternoon, I was like, we should have just stayed here for like a few days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did a lot of that stuff show up in the menu when you opened uh, in... Yeah, September? I think a lot of those experiences definitely um, affected the menu for sure. Yeah. Most of it was more or less just to get like a more better understanding of like where the, where the ingredients are coming from, how they're being used, you know, like 
we went to like a wasabi farm. Oh, that's cool. Most of the towns we stayed in have like a very rich fishing culture, right? Like, so you, all you have to do is just walk around and observe. And you're like, oh, crazy. They're bringing the fish, they're drying it right here and selling it to you at the train station. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you get up early, they're like just literally setting the fillets out, and like salting them. And then they're just like, okay, these will be ready at 11 in the morning. That's awesome. That's you know, insane. It's crazy the quality of food in Japan. Just it's mind blowing. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. I was only there for six months for like a student exchange, and it was just like it's not even close to enough time to even scratch the surface. It's there's it's so a, much. A really good example of like even convenience uh, store food, volcanic terroir benefiting a region. You know, like. Mm-hmm. All the ecosystems surrounding the island and the ocean are doing really well and thriving, or at least up until more recently, probably not. But like, yeah, you know, it's like you have this balance of like the land is so healthy, it's so rich in minerals, it produces all of these amazing products that like support the animals and the humans living on it, <laughs> and yeah. then like the ocean trickles that trickles into the ocean, and so you just have this like really great producing area. It's really rad. Yeah. How did you work out the setup for Pink Zebra? Was it kind of similar to? What was happening at Mission Chinese? A little, like, yeah. You guys split the split the space down the middle, and it was like, "I'll offer you a rent if you want me to pay portion of the bills, or we can include that in the rent, or whatever." They wanted like a profit split, which mean, I mean, <laughs> which meant I had to make a profit. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Like they thought they were going to be making. Ultimately, the deal would have worked out if I had stuck it through, had a little bit more resources. But everything was ran so bare boned that it almost didn't feel like a, it felt way too much like a pop up. I think it's like when you only have one server, right? But it's only like twenty seats. Oh, it was that small. Well, we just had like one side of the dining room, okay. and they had the other. Oh, okay, okay. And then we had the sushi counter, which had like six seats at it. Okay, because it was this Chinese restaurant, but they sold sushi. <laughs> I felt really bad. They kicked their sushi chef out into the corner of the kitchen, and he was oh. so. Um, displeased with that and like oh, I bet yeah. that was very easy to pick. like <laughs> I could really tell he battled it was hard damn um, but yeah we set it up so that basically like if we make any money you'll get this much they thought we were going to be making like a shitload of money and I don't really know how because like we only had one metro rack in the walk-in <laughs> so the it like, just wasn't enough space you know, it was like yeah there wasn't a ton yeah. of space like, like in the end they clearly they they, they even said they were like we thought we would be making like an extra like forty thousand dollars a month from you and i was like what when our agreement was like 25 percent of profit like that would mean i'd have to make one hundred twenty thousand. like that doesn't make sense to me like there's no way there's just like <laughs> yeah it wasn't crazy. it wasn't busy either like it just yeah. didn't really gain traction it was weird we were covered in the media i mean there was yeah. like write-ups and stuff and they were all positive but i think that like yeah i don't know if it was timing or what it was did you did you have any like reservations about running your own spot? Did that scare you? Because that's that's something I've always thought. Like taking that plunge is it must be terrifying. Yeah, there was anxiety around it in the yeah. beginning, and then like I was able to get through it and find a way to balance it. But really, what it meant in the end was that like I was doing everything, and so when you're doing everything, you have less time to cook. Okay, so you you're know, kind of delegating. You, you become like, oh, I'm I'm pretty okay at bookkeeping now. <laughs> and I understand how taxing a business works, but that took like two hours of my day when I could have been prepping or cooking, you know, like, yeah, yeah. 
I'm okay at running invoices and paying bills and I have no, uh, like I have like no debts, <laughs> but yeah. I'm not cooking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is why you wanted to have the restaurant, right? Yeah. Did you find it hard to manage people? That seems like such a, probably the most difficult part about running a restaurant. It, it, it's, it's hard. It's still hard for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm getting better. I get better at it, but I only had like one or two friends working with me at a time. Okay. And a dishwasher. If, and then after a while, I just didn't yeah. have a dishwasher. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, I had a small staff. Yeah. And Rio and I were more like partners than, anything. I mean, it's like we just worked together on everything. It, yeah, it didn't really work out. I don't know. And then I kind of lost steam. I just was like, I remember like starting to lose enthusiasm. You know, I just was like, fuck. <sighs> Another week, you know? Like, Damn. yeah, that's not. <laughs> like Sunday would come around and I'd be like, yeah, shit. I'm going to do this again tomorrow. Shit. And I and looking back and remembering like how it used to be like, okay, it's Monday. I'm going to get up at seven. I'm going to yeah. go do this. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Excited and like you plan a shit out. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that kind of happens? Is it just burnout? I burned myself out. I didn't, I didn't like have a big enough core team to help deal with all those other things, you know? Yeah. That would have, I think, done a lot to it. And, and really what that means is you either have like people that like trust and believe in what you're doing and are willing to make a sacrifice for a short period of time mm-hmm. or you have just extra resources padded so that you can say like, yeah, we're going to keep paying at least four people. Like there's going to be four people on the team, right? Yeah. Not just me and Rio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's important. Like you need to have like people doing the things that you just don't want to have to do really. Yeah. 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 So did your investor, the guy that helped you kind of open it, did he just kind of leave you alone with no support or? Well, there wasn't like an investor. I Oh no. Okay. fundraised through family and a couple close friends. Wow. And then, yeah, I was able to pay that back minus one friend debt that I just kept paying um, over the next year and paid that off. But like, yeah, there wasn't like a, a, a an investor in the beginning. That also probably would have changed things. I mean, yeah, I sure. wanted it to be more DIY. I wanted it to just have a feel where it was like <laughs> kind of weird and, and awkward, but then I think it was like too real. It was just like, you're hanging out in someone's living room, listening to their records. <laughs> that, sounds, that, sounds that sounds great to me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a great idea. <laughs> how, how, uh, how long did it, did it last? I guess. Nine, nine months. Yeah. Like nine months. Damn. But then after that, I was doing like pop-ups at other satellite locations, like friends, restaurants, okay. market stuff, you know, just like mm-hmm. little, I was doing like a, Yakitori pop up at a friend's winery was really fun. That's cool. Do you still keep up with it or just let it? No, I've, I've kind of let it go. Yeah. But like, I, I put the zebra down. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put the zebra down. Um, it's funny because, like, I feel like that video we did with Vice, like, has yeah. surged more over the last six months or a year because, like, randomly every once in a while, someone will come up to me and be like, Oh, I saw that funny video. It's awesome. You know, like yeah. compliment me on it. But I feel like lately it's like once a week or something. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I was like, maybe it, it like circulated on some website again. And then like people are, are seeing so, it again or something, but you know, know. it's like trippy. And then I, I think it brings up this internal thing where I'm like, yeah, that was fun. Like, <laughs> oh, I feel kind of weird and awkward talking yeah. about it to people. Cause I'm like, I wanted it to work out and it did it. <laughs> Damn. Well, but Have just, you thought about another thing or are you done with opening your own? Your I own go spot? back and forth. I feel like if I were to do something again, I, I really do want to do like a really casual, chill punk rock yakitori place. 
we went to this spot in Tokyo called Tatemiachia, and it's fucking rad. <laughs> Just like this, like little punk rock fucking like izakaya, and like it's awesome. He's got like a turntable behind the counter and like behind his station. So he's like he's like changing records <laughs> like, and he's like playing records years. Years and like, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. It's cool. Um, I did a pop up like at the slow club after we moved out of the shared space during like Christmas one year, cause she it was closed, but no one was buying it yet. And she was like, if you want to use it, you could do a pop-up here. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So we did something similar to that. Like I stood up a turntable on the little kitchen counter. <laughs> yeah. That's all, I mean, do you think that I'm, I'm, I, I talk about this a lot with my friends and, and coworkers and stuff, but do you think that like restaurants like that in that, are so small and niche could work here? Or do you think that it's, I mean, it's I overblown here? It seems it, like it depends on the city and the neighborhood. Yeah. It's like, it's so niche that like you could get it to work. You just have to really find that place where it's going to work. Hmm. Like you can't just open it in an affordable spot for you in a good location for, you know, and be like, okay, it's like, you know, you have to like really search it out with that place. I think it's like, a lot of bands go there because of the notoriety. So then like they're autographing the walls and like, oh, okay. okay. There's like movie fun. star autograph, like movie stars will go there too, because the food's good. Mm-hmm. But there's like this, like sort of like clout to it. Right. At this mm-hmm. point, you could tell yeah. there's just so like, even like the Ramones were there, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but it seems like this need to um, have, you know, 30 seats, 40 seats, 80. It's like, why why can't there be a place that just has like a a bar just like in japan you walk in it's literally just 10 seats and you're hanging out you're watching basically like a counter with like a pass window drop down shelf so you just see like this cinematic view of what's going on in there yeah and then yeah i mean you could i think you would need to like because of the way the economic structure works in this country it's like Mm -hmm. you need to have a secondary thing operating in there like you'd have to be connected to like a bike repair shop which is another idea i have is having like yeah, like a Dunbury, a Dunbury, and like bike repair. <laughs> That'd be sick. We have a place here in Austin that's like um bike repair and a coffee shop, and it's it does really well. well. Yeah. Dunburys you could do without a kitchen. Like you could you could make them with rice cooker and like induction yeah. burner. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And like you could yeah. spend twenty k on like a fryer with its own built in Ansel that doesn't need a hood because mm-hmm. it has a hood built into it, and mm-hmm. then it's like you know <laughs> you can do yeah. that. So after, after Pink Zebra, did you wander around for a bit or did you? I mean, let's see. Rio started working on the project that he's running now, which is where I work, which is Kuma Sushi. Um, so him and his business partner at that point started to focus their energies on getting Kuma up, up and running, mm-hmm. and they, which they ended up eventually doing um, like about a year and a half after the pop-up. And so at that point... I was working shifts at my friend's um, Korean restaurant, Namagaji, which has since closed. But Dennis Lee and his brothers own that spot. And they had a really good, like, community following. He let me, like, post up there and, like, do pop-ups there and, like, kind of had, like, free use of the space. It was pretty rad. He was really generous and was a really rad guy to work for. He was really good with business and knowing, like, what people wanted and how to turn that into something he could produce, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 2015, 16, I was like still doing pop up stuff at Namagaji. Like, I was doing like wine dinners with different um, wine suppliers, but like it was hard though. Like, filling enough seats once every two weeks or like once a month, I would play on like a new menu. So then I started doing like Yakitori Tuesday, 
which was fun because cool. we were like yeah. eating chicken. Ooh, okay. Those in that's the pretty cool. Prep room upstairs and like sell stick. That's always. I mean, that's what I was like, dude. This is so much easier is just sell sticks. People love sticks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What sucks is is like actually making the 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 skewers. You have to do I a lot of doing it. I, I figured yeah. like yeah. I learned. Yeah. I kind of self taught myself. <laughs> based on what I ate in Japan and what I ate here and then what I read yeah. and know about it. Like, um, and I wouldn't say I'm like a master at it. Like I'm still pretty okay. Pretty amateur <laughs> in order to get a lot of like the really odd bits. You have to have a lot of chickens in rotation constantly. You know, if you want to do like yeah. kneecaps and yeah, tails, tails and, and, you know, yeah. it's like you just have to either save them or um, have a shitload yeah. of chicken going on. It would, and that's hard when you're just doing a stick pop up. I did bring in like liver yeah. and heart gizzards i would use the next so you were just breaking down whole chickens and then just using whatever you had and that's yeah. it i mean i would accept, like what were my cuts i would order extra skin um and do all the skin i would get like extra liver and gizzards and hearts and then with the bodies i just did like 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 basically like white meat with negi i did like dark meat on its own um, and then I would separate things like tenders, cartilage pieces, tails. I opened up the wings and butterfly them so they get all rad and glossy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, um, a, that's a hard, hard well, thing to do. I, I just kind of can't keep it simple. Like I did yeah, separate the different right. muscles of the leg on like different skewers. And I didn't really tell anybody. I would just be like, here's dark meat. But like if it was a friend, I'd be like, oh, here's the inner shin muscle, which is one of my favorites. They're like, yeah. This is all oysters. <laughs> nice. Did you, are you still doing that? You're still like doing that every once in a while? No, I'm not no. really, I haven't really been doing any pop-up stuff in the last few years. I had like a really gnarly injury. Um, oh yeah. I was going to ask my you. Bike, and then like that sort of shifted my life a lot and slowed me down and made me appreciate other things more. Yeah. I've always ridden my bike a lot, but like I would say in the last like, like six or eight years, I've been really taking it more seriously. And then, after that accident, I kind of realized, like, I actually like cycling more than I like cooking. <laughs> Maybe I should pay more attention to cycling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what happened? Because my, my brother also lived in San Francisco for about, I think, two or three years. And he also was, he was hit by a, a Uber driver. And, like, had to have his shoulder. Okay? Um, Did he get Did he make it? Oh, yeah, he's, he's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. fine. But his shoulder was messed up for a while. And, yeah. yeah. It's, it seems like. San Francisco is a tough place to run it. Yeah. I um yeah, I got T boned by a car. Jeez, man. I, I advanced the light, I'm pretty sure. Like it's weird because yes, I was drinking. No, I wasn't blacked out, but no, I don't remember it because it was such a traumatic injury, like that whole mm-hmm. um I remember like the block before. Because <laughs> I remember like, I had to turn at City Hall, so I like looped around yeah. City Hall and then went down I mean a block later is where it happened. But like um. Yeah, T-bone by a car, you know, forty-five. So it like sends you one hundred twenty feet down the street through the air, and then, jeez, I'm pretty mangled. I'm glad I don't have a visual memory of what I've looked like. Yeah, my leg broke in like three different places, and my spine broke, my head shattered, Whoa. and I had like a lot of surgeries. Wow, man! How long does it take you to recover? I was on crutches after like a month and a half, but was on crutches for five months and then was able to go to like a cane for like a month and a half. Damn, man. Like cane and bus to work was hard because I really wanted to go back to work too. Like they let me keep my job. 
but then like at that point you're just like i want to contribute to the world (laughs) 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 and i was like really focusing on the physical therapy like i really i I really wanted to be able to work comfortably i really wanted to be able to ride my bike at -hmm. least at least as well as i could before was the goal right yeah yeah and then like just really focused on the therapy and then yeah when i was able to go back to work i think that's when a lot more things kind of come back for you you know you're in like your daily routine you won't talk to you yeah. the bus stop or whatever but how how do you i i like i have a hard time you know or any cook has a hard time working you know long hours how do you how did you deal with that because i mean i physically couldn't and they knew that i was like i i'll just come in and help with prep like I'll come in like during the lunch shift. I'll just do all the fish, right? Because then I'm so just kind of doing here. Slow. Stink. Yeah. Just like cleaning and breaking out all the fish and getting them on water. And like, um, you know, that is just like four hours of work, which allowed me to work part time, right? Like four hours, five hours, five yeah. days a week. And it was like a routine. It was like I had to get up, hobble over the bus stop with a cane, you know. <laughs> Yeah. All those things I think I thought were good. I was like, just doing anything normal is going to be better for recovery. And like, but yeah, I mean, I feel like I am stronger now. I don't know. I have like a titanium rod and a plate in my leg, so it's like, wow, Damn. gotta be stronger than the one on the left. But I can. I'm definitely thankful that like I can work yeah. all day. Um, I, I like mentally I can't work all day anymore. Like I can only pull like three doubles, and I'll, I'll just start to go crazy. Like. Jeez, just, yeah, you know, of course. 45. I just don't, I kind of don't want to do it anyway, but like, know that I have to. And then I found a way to challenge myself, which is just to focus more on like um, all the things that are hard for me about working in the sushi counter. You know, it's like being more social has always been hard for me. Like if I get really yeah, busy, like my head just goes down. So it's like learning how to like maintain like calm, friendly composure while you're getting your ass kicked and making a million pieces of sushi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like the focus right now. That's hard for me. Like I'll just spaz out, go crazy, not talk to anybody. Yeah. Kind of yeah, yeah. But then I like, think about it. I was like, that's just awkward for whoever's sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> like they want someone who's yeah. like friendly and chill. <laughs> yeah. They want to talk to you. They want to like yeah, have a good time. And then you're just in the shit. And, and it's like you go into, you go into like shit mode. Like, I mean, like yeah. you, know, like, chicken <laughs> where you don't have anybody to talk to. <laughs> the person yeah. yelling at you. And so you're just like jamming. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's like yeah. knowing how to throttle that is hard. That's like my um my like goal lately. It's like you just stay in middle gear. That's what I've realized. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really smart way to 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 go about burnout. I've been burnt out a lot at this current job. And I found that I've kind of do the same thing. Like I just pick one thing the day that I'm just gonna focus on that thing and it kinda helps you get through. Yeah. Or it's constantly just learning something that you never yeah. and thought of learning. I feel like yeah. because I'm in charge of People, when I'm there, it's like, that's another thing I shift my focus on is like, today I want to make sure that everybody knows that they're like recognized for what they do. Oh, that's, that's great. That's, you know? <laughs> yeah, of and course. Even if it's in it a matters. subtle way that works for them, because I know how they are. Um, and just like expressing that to them, you know, like, when, like, cause it's like, it's easy to forget, like when something goes right and it's perfect, you're like, yeah, and you move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's easy to forget, like, to tell them, like, how good the rice is, you know? Yeah. Because you're usually like, hey, the rice sucks right now. I'm really busy. This sucks. <laughs> yeah, you're more likely to just tell everybody how, when it's shitty, as opposed to when it's good. Because when it's yeah. good, it's going smooth, you know? Well, yeah. then they know, too. It's like, I remember, like, coming up and having yeah. just be like, hey, the blah, blah, blah is really good today. It's really, like, right, right, right. Thank you. 
And then you think about yeah. what you did and you're like, that was different from the time that it sucked or any other day. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you're like, okay, so that's where he wants mm-hmm. it. At least for today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who knows about tomorrow? So. Uh, that shit's helpful. Especially because like, yeah. you know, I feel like the whole culinary world is, is shifting to more like self-awareness and sustainability, even in like staffing, you know? And so it's like, we focus a yeah. lot at Cuba on trying to keep everybody happy. And like, if they need an extra time, like day off, cause they're having a shitty week. It's like, just ask for it. We'll f- try to get it covered and figure it out. You know, or have that's work really nice. Yeah. Um, but really good about taking care of staff there. I think it has to move that way. Cause like, I don't know what it's like there, but here it's almost impossible to find anybody new. And even if you do find anybody that's willing to apply, are they good enough to even do the job that you're asking? Have you ever met like an 18 year old who, who grew up in this country who is like, man, do you know anybody who needs a dishwasher? Cause like, <laughs> no, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I know I would have to be a light cook and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then a sous chef and then, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's kind of a nightmare out there right now. So I think like keeping people, the people that you do have happy and healthy and it, it really matters. It'll, it'll people stick around. I think about it. Like hardly anybody wants to be a cook or a chef, but it's like at a point in, in history when like you could just open up Instagram and literally like go to a website and apply for a job in any country. Yeah. <laughs> at any, like any level of place you want to, Versus like when I was coming up, it was like you had to go buy a newspaper, look in the classifieds, figure out what yeah. restaurants had just like busboy or dishwashing. But you know what I mean? <laughs> Anything yeah. you qualified for, call them, set up an appointment. You're a teenager. Yeah. So you don't really know anything about the restaurant scene. You're like, oh, free pizza. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> free yeah, donuts. Just- you know? <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, that's true. You can. Right now, you can get a job at Noma if you've you know apply for it or yeah, you know, yeah, crazy. yeah, it's nuts, it's nuts. So, so the yeah. opportunity level is like really high if you if yeah. you have a way to get to it. I mean, sure, it takes money to fly across the world, but yeah. like honestly, if I was that age, like that's what credit cards are for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. yeah, great opportunity. Yeah. So what's uh what's next for you? Are you just kind of uh more trying to transition more towards uh uh, bikes and away from cooking or are you planning on like sticking it out in, in the biz? Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a plan. I think like what I would like to see is like a way to, for, to be involved in something that involves both of those worlds. You know, yeah. I still love the cooking universe. Um, I like the bike yeah. thing community. And I think if I keep thinking about it that way, like how, how can I involve both of them? Something then will sort of either spark or come to fruition, you know? Yeah. So I'm in the same boat as well. I'm trying to like not piece out of cooking, but like try to sort of mesh cooking with writing and graphic design, which is mainly what I do with this magazine. So yeah, yeah. kind of feel your, your, your struggle as well. It's so, hard because you, like, you spend your life yeah. working on a specific craft. And when you realize like, okay, from this point, the rest of the journey is going to involve like, this is like on the standard level, right? Like some income investment, <laughs> then a spot, then you're running it and you have a full crew and you've taken all of your like yeah. accumulated knowledge and you're trying to pass it on and teach it to these people that want to make it for you as well as like share it with the people that are going to pay you for it to eat it. And mm-hmm. like when I realized like, that's not what I want though anymore. I don't, I don't really want to do yeah. that. 
because I know like how, how stressful that is. I know it's very like singular reward in a way. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I don't, yeah, I don't want to just like throw away 25 years of experience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You that said, doesn't seem wise. No. <laughs> like, what do you do with all that knowledge? Like, yeah. 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 Like what seems wise is to like, look at other parts of your life that you have gained things from and then be like, okay, like as an accumulative, like thing, like how can you put it all together and really represent yourself? Yeah. yeah that's the hard part. So it's just like, I think I'm, sh- I'm like shifted my perspective about what I see as an opportunity, I guess. I mean, I think the restaurant business is shifting pretty, pretty much in that direction anyway. Super fast. In the last like three yeah. years, it's changed so drastically. It's fucking mind blowing. Yes. Yeah. It's insane. Specifically here, there's like a lot more, not pop-ups, I guess you would call them pop-ups, but it's more just like casual, something that's like easy, mm-hmm. easy accessible for customers, but also easily to get into. Like all you have to do is buy a tent and go to somebody's patio and all of a mm-hmm. sudden it's a burger. It's a burger joint, you know? Sure. I mean? Yeah. It's crazy shit like that. That's right. So yeah, people are definitely, or like I said, like earlier, the coffee shop, with it's also repairs bikes, you know? So mm-hmm. it's definitely moving that, that way. I, mean, I feel like, like the one of the one of the positive things about pandemic life was that like it has collectively shifted in some way or another how everyone Ooh. sees their environment around them and you know that can mean a lot of different things and it does mean a lot of different things but one thing it does mean is it's created a huge massive shift yeah you know and yeah. and so it, it's it, yeah it's also hard to remember that because you inherently think about the, the world around you from the person that you are and always have been. But then to remember like, oh yeah, but then this whole thing happened. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like collectively changed society's minds. <laughs> and it almost feels like we're collectively waking up and all changing at the same time. It's mm-hmm. very bizarre. Very, very bizarre. Mm-hmm. It's I like a know. weird enlightenment in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like a second enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I, again, I really appreciate you taking this time sure. and talking. It's been a fantastic conversation. So I'm a storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. You too, man.